Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we meet some of the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, the editor of Prospect magazine. This week, we're talking to philosopher Claire Carlyle about the 19th century novelist George Eliot. Though Eliot's best remembered as the celebrated author of Middlemarch and Silas Marner, she was, Carlyle reckons, also a brilliant philosopher, perhaps England's greatest. Our arts and books editor, Samir Rahim, talks to Claire about George Eliot's little-known academic interests and why the novelist was inspired in particular by the Dutch philosopher Spinoza. Claire is a regular contributor to Prospects Pages and teaches philosophy at King's College London. You can read her essay on George Eliot's philosophy on our website, which we'll link to in the show notes. But before that, I'm delighted to be here with Samir himself, um, who has lately been busy judging the Booker Prize. So before we get to that 19th century canon, uh, Samir, I guess you're trying to form the 21st century canon in real time. How's that been? Um, well, yeah, just like making sausages, the, the closer you look at the process, the less um, impressive it is in some ways. Uh, yeah, so I suppose we are thinking of in, t- in terms of when we're selecting, me and my fellow judges selecting these um, 13 long-listed books and ultimately a winner, uh, the kind of books that will inevitably get a boost from uh, a listing and what we want to share. So it, it, it does, it does um, uh, bring to bear a certain level of responsibility that you feel as as you're reading these books, um, uh, which I think is is interesting. I think we also have to trust time in the sense that lots of books that have been selected over the years have faded, um, and lots of books that haven't been selected or didn't win at all have gone on to be, you know, regarded as as great works. So I don't think we should overestimate our ability to uh, to shape things. But it's it's a sort of starting pistol, as it were. Um, if journalism is you know the first draft of history, then prize uh, giving and reviewing is, is sort of the first draft of um, canon formation. But is it different from the Nobel Prize, which, like at least before Bob Dylan, which was maybe a more contentious one, very kind of consciously is meant to be about the high art end of literature. If we look back at, I can't remember if these ones have won or been shortlisted, but, you know, Ian McEwan's Amsterdam, uh, um, Paddy Clark, Ha Ha Ha, these kind of um, books, like I don't think they would have had 
Nobel written all over them, but they were very, very good trade books. I mean, are you thinking of like what you're doing is looking for great literature and giving this prize or is it sort of somewhere between that and being popular and accessible? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's hard. I think I think the person who ultimately chooses the judges um, is the person who, you know, when the judges are chosen, there is a sort of deliberate sense of wanting to balance different interests and uh, backgrounds. Um, so we've got, you know, Lee Child, who's a novelist, uh, to write thrillers. We've got Emily Wilson, um, who's a translator uh, of Greek texts, particularly Homer, Lim Cisse, a poet, and Margaret Busby, a venerable publisher, uh, and myself, a books editor, and, um, uh, uh, you know, written a novel as well. So we all come of it from slightly different directions. And we have had discussions in the meetings. I hope I'm not revealing too much here. But we have had discussions about, you know, to what extent can we what are the criteria we are using to judge these books? And I think, uh, is it just mere opinion? Are we just sort of saying what we think, this is good, this is bad? Or are we actually having a sort of literary critical discussion? Um, I always find arguments about, you know, whether there's such a thing as a one book can be better than another, or is there such a thing as literary good taste or bad taste? Um, I find that argument not that interesting. In some ways, we just have to assume that there is something that's, um, there are some books that are better than others. And what we discuss is the criteria, or what we discuss is the actual technique of the book. Um, so, you know, there are books which are very successful on their own terms, um, which we, which I've looked at um, so far. Um, but what they're seeking to do isn't particularly ambitious or interesting. There are other books which are sort of grander and more ambitious, but are more sort of uh, interesting in some ways, but maybe not so uh, perfect in their technique. Um, so what you're doing is judging um, both sets of characteristics, and then you're having a, you're having a you know what's been so far been a really fun, really fun discussion process. Of course, last year they couldn't agree a winner, could they? We had two. Um, <laughs> think you'll avoid that. Um, I think one thing that can be guaranteed this year is that we will have a winner uh, and it will be a winner. Well, you heard it here first. And so, Samir, if we zoom back from your duties as a um, Booker Prize judge trying to make tomorrow's canon and think about the established canon and George Eliot, uh, just remind people who might not have read her novels, I haven't read many of them, um, like why why she is uh, seen as as great as she is, uh, not on the question of philosophy, but just as a novelist. Which is one of those uh, writers who you know she's firmly canonical. She seems very established. She's got a sort of solidity about her. She writes these big long novels um, about the state of England and society. Middlemarch being the most famous. But I'll, I'll put in a word for Daniel Deronda, which I think is that, you know, her last novel, which is absolutely exceptional. Really, really interesting, fascinating subject about. Um, Jewishness uh, and Englishness. Um, she's one of those figures that manages to draw you into a world um, and have these kind of moral debates and arguments, but it sort of makes them completely uh, uh, alive uh, at the same time. Um, yeah, she's one of my favourite writers, and she's always one you want to return to again because there's so much sort of there's so much there, there's so much depth in there. Of course, you know, you have got to remember that, you know, she is firmly chronicled now, but at the time she was a scandalous figure who lived in sin, as it were, in Victorian times with a man who wasn't, wasn't her husband. Uh, and she was also somebody who rejected her evangelical upbringing and had sort of, as we'll hear, you know, um, dissenting, as it were, religious views. Um, and um, she was also, quite interesting, an editor at a, at a magazine for a long time. 
Um, great. Well, you're obviously a genuine enthusiast. So let's zip over now to your conversation with Claire Carlyle. Hello and welcome to the Prospect interview. Uh, our guest today is Claire Carlyle, uh, who recently wrote a, a wonderful piece for us about George Eliot and the influence that the philosopher Spinoza had on her work. Um, in many ways, uh, she argues that George Eliot is one of our greatest philosophers, even though she isn't necessarily regarded as such. Um, Claire, when did you first start reading George Eliot? Well, I read her at school. I did the mill on the floss for my English A-level. And I don't remember being hugely sort of seized by her at the time. Um, I think there were other writers that I was more interested in. And then I only really went back to reading her very seriously in the last few years, um, partly because I discovered her translation of Spinoza's Ethics, and got so fascinated by that and you know, discovered that she actually made the first English translation of Spinoza's Ethics. So I became very interested in her and I went back and you know, reread some of the books I'd read in my uh, younger days and also read some of the books I hadn't read before. And I think I just appreciated them so much more, probably because by that time I'd, I knew a lot more about the intellectual context for her novels. So I got a lot more of the references to philosophical and scientific and cultural issues that she, you know, she is referring to those in her novels. And probably when I read her in my late teens and early 20s, I just didn't realise um, how rich the novels were in that respect. We'll come on to her philosophical um, beliefs and interests uh, a bit later. But let's tell us a little bit about her upbringing. She had a quite a sort of religiously inspired upbringing, didn't she? Which then influenced her later work in different ways. Well, her upbringing was just sort of solidly lower middle class Anglican, fairly conservative with a small c upbringing. Uh, her father was... Um, not himself an educated man. He worked as a, he managed an estate for a local uh, sort of wealthy family. Um, so he was a very capable man, but not not literary, not, not educated in that sense. And you know, her father hadn't gone to university. Her brother didn't go to university either. So um, it was, and it was at school that she became religiously inspired by one of her teachers. So she, she, um, she became a kind of, I think, f quite fervent evangelical Christian. But I think what she was, what the reason for that was more because she had this amazing intellectual and spiritual appetite. And at that time, Christianity gave her a, some kind of vocabulary to articulate that, those those passions. Um, and she she then moved on from from that very devout, pious Christian view and started to quite radically call it into question when she was in her 20s. Her trajectory is often compared to that of Dorothea Brooke, one of the characters in Middlemarch, with this incredible faith, but then sort of gets challenged. She was starting to read German philosophers, wasn't she? And they, they allowed her to question traditional Christianity. Yeah, that's right. So, um, I mean, she was, she was born in 1819. And so she you know, was a young woman in the 1840s. So by that time, there'd been waves of German romanticism. And these were thinkers around the turn of the century, so the early 1800s, who were, who were challenging 
both traditional Christian teaching and conventional bourgeois morality that was closely tied to those those Christian teachings. And so they were experimental both in their intellectual life, in their writing, and in their ethics and their approaches to life. So, for example, they questioned marriage as a bourgeois institution and experimented with free love and those kinds of ideas. Um, and and they actually these these so these are these are thinkers such as um, Schlegel, Schelling, Schleiermacher, these German romantics who were all reading Spinoza. Um, and he was part of this questioning of traditional Christianity. And then through those thinkers, Spinoza reached the avant-garde of English intellectual life um, around the 1820s. So Coleridge, for example, was really influenced by these German romantics and he became interested in Spinoza. So Spinoza's name began to be discussed in very kind of, I guess, bohemian intellectual circles in a, in a positive way for the first time, because until that point, Spinoza had been very much a kind of pariah. You know, he was he was seen as a, an untouchable thinker because he was associated with atheism and immorality and so on. So let's let's go back. Let's think about Spinoza then. And, and as you write in the introduction to this new edition of Spinoza's Ethics that you, you've edited, um, the connection between the contemplative celibate Jewish man in 17th century Dutch Republic, how does that resonate with the passionate, as you say, not quite married English woman in 19th century England? They seem very different figures in many ways. But um, first of all, let's think a little bit about, you know, tell, tell the listeners about Spinoza and the controversies that he was involved in and, and his beliefs. Yeah, well, so I mean, Spinoza is a fascinating figure, and I think I think he's my favourite philosopher for what it's worth. But he, so he he grew up in um, Amsterdam in the Jewish community in the 17th century, and when he was in his early 20s, he was then cast out of that community. He was excommunicated because we don't exactly know why, but because I think he was teaching religious ideas that were deemed unacceptable. And so he then lived among various sort of Christians and nonconformist Christians and Cartesian philosophers in uh, the Dutch Republic. And he was really, I guess, distinctive in that, in the sense that he, he didn't belong to a religious tradition. Um, he was a philosopher who stood outside. Obviously, he, he'd been sort of cast out of Judaism, but he was also outside the Christian church too, even though he was mixing with Christians who tried to get him to convert. He always refused to convert to Christianity. So he was a, three, a free thinker in that respect. He wasn't tied to any religious orthodoxy. And then he wrote this amazing work of philosophy over several years called the ethics which is a work of metaphysics epistemology as well as ethics you know the question of how should we live um and it's a very ambiguous book and some people have read it as an atheistic secular secularizing book whereas others have seen it as a deeply spiritual work um, Spinoza basically argues in that book that God is not separate from nature, God isn't separate from the world, but rather everything that exists is in God. Um, and it's that, that's a kind of philosophical view that can lead to, and it did lead to these romantic thinkers a hundred or so years later, um, being opposed to institutional religion and thinking that, you know, if everything is in God and if God is just throughout the 
throughout the natural world, then we can find God in in nature, in, in the experience of nature. We can find God in poetry and literature and art and so on. So it's that idea that God or God's power is infused in worldly things rather than as somehow separate from the world that gave rise to those romantic ideas. So one thing that does link Spinoza with George Eliot is Calvinism and a kind of moralistic Calvinism because that was the dominant religious culture in the 17th century Dutch Republic. The state church was a Calvinist church and Spinoza was very critical about the moralistic, moralizing preaching of um, these Calvinist leaders. Um, George Eliot, as a young woman, she, as I mentioned, became sort of devoutly Christian. So she was kind of part of that Calvinist way of thinking, but she then distanced herself from it and became critical of it. So they're both thinkers who, in different ways, questioned a moralistic Christian way of thinking about the human being and human life, um, and were looking for some different way of uh, exploring the possibilities of human fulfillment. I think they both saw these religious, these Christian teachings as repressive in some way, that they, they, they restricted and repressed human power and they were looking for a more empowering kind of ethic and a more empowering kind of religious um, spirituality. Uh, and Elliot was was reading and translating a German works of historical scholarship that was questioning the historical uh, basis of the Bible. That's right. And, yeah. and was that also very much part of her uh, movement away from conventional Christianity? Yeah, that's right. So um, when she when she started to question her faith, many of the works that she was reading were about the history of Christianity. So historical studies of the Bible, uh, historical works about you know about Christianity, as you say, often written by German scholars who were a few decades ahead of <laughs> of, um, of British um, thinkers in this respect. So there was this sort of cutting edge historical scholarship on religion coming from Germany, and often, well, certainly in the nineteenth century, to look at the historical origins of well, for example, Christianity and Christian belief was often a, a critical. Uh, exercise. You know, to, once you see that something has a history and it's a human history, it's something that evolved in human societies, that starts to unsettle the idea that this is some kind of absolute truth, some kind of unshakable authority. So that kind of historicism uh, was, a, I guess, a characteristic of 19th century European thought in general. And whether it's Darwin's theory of evolution or um, you know, these histories of, of the Bible and of Christianity, they tend to shake um, established faiths in you know, creation, for example, and the divine purposes of the natural world. And she didn't just read these works, she translated them. And what made her pick up Spinoza and think, well, I can read this, it's written in Latin originally, but I can actually go through the labour uh, of, of going word by word and translating it into English. Yes, it's quite extraordinary that a woman from such a such an ordinary, modest background would not only be interested in Spinoza, but would have the, the intellectual resources and the capacity to actually read Spinoza's texts, which were written in Latin, and not just read them, but translate them. And that's one of the things that's so admirable about her, that she basically taught herself Latin. Um, she, she taught herself... She, she had a... She, she, 
you know, asked her father to get her a tutor to teach her German and Italian. So she read these German books and translated uh, two great works of this sort of German historical scholarship, uh, Strauss's Life of Jesus and Feuerbach's The Essence of Christianity. So she translated those before she translated Spinoza. But yeah, she basically taught herself Latin from a grammar book and you know, was so formidably intelligent that she was able to then read Spinoza in, in the Latin. Um, and this, you know, this while her male co- counterparts were studying the classics at Oxford. And, you know, I just think she's incredible that she, uh, you know, she couldn't, she didn't have access to a university education um, because she was a woman, but she was able to, you know, teach herself to have access to these great works. In a way, it gave her a kind of freedom, didn't it? Because she wasn't restricted by a um, a curriculum which told you what to that's read. true but I mean I think I think she would have loved to study at university I mean I, you know I think it was a it was a question of necessity rather than uh, I don't know if she would have seen an advantage in it but she just had such an appetite for learning that if if it if it wasn't going if she wasn't going to be given a curriculum she basically managed to find her own and, and create her own um so she came across Spinoza because when she was in her 20s, she started, she became friends with some free thinking intellectuals in the Midlands where she was living at that time in Co- near Coventry. Um, and one of their friends was a doctor who used to be Coleridge's doctor. And he apparently lent her a copy of um, something by Spinoza. I don't think it was the ethics. I think it was Spinoza's other great work, um, the theological political treatise. And she started to read that and actually started to translate that. She didn't finish that translation. But then a few years later in the 1850s, um, she started to translate the ethics and, and finished it. And all this is in a way leading up to her great fictional works. Now, why did she transfer from doing these translations of philosophical works or philosophical texts into fiction? Was mm, it all a, a build mm, up to that? Mm. or? Well, I mean, I think she... Um, so, yeah, sp- translating Spinoza's Ethics was the last major project that she did before she started writing fiction. She was also, at that time, as in addition to doing these translations, she had spent two or three years editing the Westminster Review, which was a major London journal. She'd moved to London by this time and she was writing a lot of reviews and editing reviews. So she was she was writing a lot as well as translating, but she was writing, you know, works of nonfiction. Um, and so I think we can, you know, we can say that at this time, as a translator of these philosophical works and as a reviewer and a writer, um, she was she probably saw herself as a philosopher. You know, that's probably how she would have how she would have regarded herself. And she did have ambitions to write a work of philosophy. She had, a, she wanted to write a work of philosophy on the idea of the afterlife or the, the immortality of the soul, which she, she never did. Um, having said that, she had always had literary, or for a long time, she'd had some literary ambitions. Um, you know, one of her friends made a comment in the eight, 1940s about oh maybe she's writing her novel now so so she we know that she must have mentioned this idea of writing a novel um, even before she did any of these translations but I think it was a step that she didn't feel emboldened to take until she got together with George Henry Lewis who um, was her then you know her, her life partner for 20 years and they basically ran off together um they eloped to uh, Germany and that's when she started to translate the ethics. But when they, they went away, she took with him a, 
a brief sort of fragment of some kind of fiction writing that she'd done at some point. She just sort of happened to have it in her suitcase and she 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 read it to him one night and he really encouraged her that you know she did have the ability to write fiction. Um and I think it was his encouragement that gave her the the courage that she needed to actually you know start to write stories and um, a few months after she finished the translation of Spinoza they were back in England and she wrote her first story which became the first of three sort of long short stories um that she eventually published under the pseudonym George Eliot as Scenes of Clerical Life so that they were her first uh pieces of fiction this triptych of stories and then the following year she wrote her first novel which is Adam Bede it's interesting that her first published works were about um a clerical exactly absolutely so it shows the it shows the evolution of her of her thinking and her interest in religion um that as you say that so these three stories each one is about a an anglican priest um and about his sort of love life basically um and she shows these different these different characters um generally um not making a very good job of of uh, <laughs> of of being married um but yeah so so you can see that her interest in in religion and 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 all i think all her novels have priests as characters in the novels um, but then they also have characters who are less conventionally religious so for example adam bede one of the main characters in adam bede is a female methodist preacher um so that's a kind of non-conformist religious voice that george eliot is exploring there through this character of the young female preacher so what did she draw more specifically from spinoza and his philosophy that we can read into the great works like middle march for example yes yeah so i think she i think she is less interested in spinoza's metaphysics so the kind of pantheist metaphysics i was mentioning earlier the idea that god is suffused in nature i think she's interested in those ideas and they they sort of pop up a bit in her novels but that's not her main focus her main focus is more spinoza's analysis of the human being of human psychology and particularly of human emotions so the ethics is divided into five books and the third book is is about emotions about human emotions and then the third and fourth build on that picture of our emotional life to set out an account of what our freedom would consist in of what a good flourishing human life looks like on the basis of this understanding of human emotion so that's absolutely central to spinoza's philosophy and it's that that i think is the link between george eliot's um work on spinoza and then the mature vision of human beings that we see in her novels i think both spinoza and george eliot have this incredible emotional intelligence and this deep insight into the nature of human emotion and not 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 just the experience of having emotions but the way human beings interact and interrelate with one another the kind of interdependence that we have um in our relationships with other people and how that how that how those relationships are always relationships of 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 emotion yeah that 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 our encounters with other people always make us feel something and feel in different ways and can perhaps often expand our emotional range by by coming into contact with other people so i think for both george eliot and spinoza they don't see in they're not individualistic writers they don't see 
kind of human selves as um, as self-contained or autonomous or detached. Uh, rather, we are always relational and we're shaped and formed by those relationships. So those themes of relationality and human interdependence and the emotional inflection of that are, I think, very Spinoza's themes that we see dramatized in Eliot's novels. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I mean, when you read Elliot, she doesn't feel like she's writing, you know, tracks disguised as a novel or, uh, you know, in, in putting sort of philosophical ideas into she seems to sort of almost she dramatizes as you say and she's some sort of internalized um all the um the philosophy that she's been reading and then just produces the novel uh in a very uh readable absolutely way. so i mean and this is what is so great about her um her i mean you could you could know nothing about the philosophical background to her work and her novels you know as just as novels just as literature are as you know accepted as, as masterpieces so purely on the literary level they are these incredible works of art and as you say that you know we can compare her to other thinkers for example someone like Jean-Paul Sartre who um, in a sense you know his novels are, are, are not very good as novels I mean they might be interesting um, but they're really philosophical ideas that then that are then sort of put into a novel form and that might be an interesting way of approaching philosophical ideas but they're not great literature. Um, whereas with Eliot, I think, as you say, she's basically, it's like she, she's digested these philosophical ideas and then they sort of flow through her writing, but she's not just dramatizing ideas in a straightforward sense. Um, so they are, they're, for me, they're, gen, they're genuinely philosophical novels rather than novels that somehow try to represent uh, philosophical ideas you know in in a specific character or a specific plot they don't really work on that level they're much more subtle and much all you know I think I think all the better for that but but also perhaps it's 
not so easy to recognise them as philosophical novels. Whereas, as I say, someone like Jean-Paul Sartre, we can see we can see these we can recognise certain concepts in his novels. You know, oh, this is about freedom or responsibility, and he's dealing with these philosophical issues. Whereas, I think because Eliot's way of weaving philosophy into novels is is more holistic, more organic, and more subtle, it's harder to recognise them. But they're actually, I would argue, better for that. Better, better as philosophy as well as as literature. And philosophers have often used um, fictional forms in order to tell um, their own stories about about the world. And he's worked on uh, Kierkegaard for a long time. Yes. And uh, he's an example of someone who, who writes uh, uh, fictionalised philosophical works. Um, but you wouldn't really call him a novelist in the same sense. No, no. I mean, again, I think as you know, as fiction, his his works are pretty bad. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> so for example, he wrote a novella called Repetition, which is just extremely weird, experimental work. As a work of philosophy, it's absolutely brilliant and groundbreaking, and the fictional elements make it interesting as a as a work of philosophy but if you try and read it as a novel it's basically unreadable i mean it doesn't you know it doesn't have um you can't the characters are not are not realistic you can't really relate to them you can't really understand them um you know you in a way that they're, they're they're almost a bit alienating as works of fiction they're, they're odd and um puzzling whereas the experience of reading one of George Eliot's novels is that you just get drawn into this world and you can, um, the characters are so, so real. And, um, and that means that they have an effect on you emotionally as a reader. And that connects with this sort of spinazistic idea of how our, how we are interrelated beings and we encounter people and that has an emotional effect on us. And that's the experience of reading the novel is that you, you, become kind of porous to those emotional exchanges between the characters and you're you're drawn into that so in a sense it really instantiates that philosophical vision it doesn't just represent it or try to describe it it actually makes it happen in a way and makes you as a reader I think understand uh, that interdependence and that um, and, and, and actually experience those emotional insights that the characters themselves are often undergoing in her novels. Um, I wonder whether um, George Ellis is, of course, well known as a uh, as a novelist, and uh, there are many other uh, female novelists and poets that you could study English literature at university and pretty much only study women and have a very good course, but in philosophy it seems quite different. Um, I wonder why you think that might be. Well, it's 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 to do with, as I mentioned, you know, women weren't able to go to university until I think the end of the nineteenth century, so too late for George Eliot, and so um, women just didn't have access to the kind of the kind of curriculum and the kind of education that that men had access to. Um, so I suppose that's the main reason. And even now, you know, it's philosophy and in universities is still a male dominated discipline. I mean, I am often, you know, I'll go to a conference and there'll be 10 speakers and the two of us will be women. You know, that's just, that's just extremely normal. Um, and so there's just a sort of cultural, cultural structure that takes an awful long time to shift. 
it certainly is shifting now. Um, you know, plenty of women are studying philosophy and and I think, you know, have opportunities to, to do philosophy. But one thing that's interesting is that because the philosophical canon is so male-dominated, um, the, the kinds of philosophical questions that get framed as, as the core questions are often, you know, may exclude some of the kinds of questions that women might be more uh, focused on. So it's not just who's doing philosophy, but how, you know, what, how philosophy, what we think philosophy is, um, and what we, what the what we think the the question, the central questions are, is a fairly kind of masculine <laughs> masculine thing. So it takes time to change that, um, and I suppose it's one of the reasons why I want to really advocate for George Eliot's not just her philosophical accomplishments, the fact that you know she translated Spinoza's Ethics, she did the first English translation, which is a really incredible contribution to the history of philosophy. Not just that, but she is also, I think, a philosophical thinker and writer in her own right. And I want to really advocate for that because um, I think it helps to correct uh, um, sort of overly masculine or overly male-dominated conception of what philosophy is and what the philosophical canon is. Yeah, so we need to redefine and expand what the meaning of exactly. the word philosophy is. Exactly, exactly. And um, I mean, that's part of what I've argued in, towards the end of the piece on George Eliot and Spinoza. I think that is already already changing and there's more willingness to look at works of literature or poetry or art as also works of philosophy. And that actually you know, goes back a long way. If you go back to Plato's dialogues, these are incredibly artful literary works and really it's only in the last few hundred years that the dominant model for philosophical writing has been a more I guess scientific and sort of more systematic uh, model that that's what philosophy looks like it consists in arguments and propositional claims that are demonstrated and um, actually when you go back through the philosophical tradition you get a huge variety of lit literary genres um, and perhaps that's because philosophy is really about the the truth of human existence and some of those literary forms dialogue fiction are ways into that truth um that can perhaps penetrate aspects of of human existence that can't be grasped purely through kind of logical argument claire Collal, thank you thank you very much That's all from us. Thank you for joining this week on The Prospect Interview. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a rating or a review. Rebecca Liu is our producer. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.